The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For all the boots of the trampings warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onward and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When the ice storm knocked out our power, many of us experienced firsthand what it is like to live in a world of darkness. Of course, we are fortunate to have flashlights and candles. Some of us even had kerosene lanterns and oil lamps. Some of us could afford to buy a generator. But it wasn't until the late 19, or 1800s and, and late 1700s that common folk had candles. People lived in the dark when the sun went down. Now, we learned just a, a little bit of what it's like to live like that. When you light one candle, we've got all these candles, but when you light one candle, when you move up close, it seems to glow pretty well. But you walk out of the room, and you're in the dark again. That one little candle doesn't provide a whole lot of light. Well, Monday afternoon during the storm, as it was still drizzling down and freezing, I had been out to Memorial Park Cemetery Chapel for the committal service for Dr. Grubb. The power was off, so we had to use the dim, natural light that was filtering in some of the windows. We may do, but it reminded me of the pioneer days when only a pot-bellied stove in the church provided heat, and services were only held in the daylight hours. Of course, I don't remember that personally. I have visited with some of our older, lifelong Methodists who have told me that when they were youth, they had to go to church early in the winters and get that pot-bellied stove all fired up for church services. And if they did that, then they got to go pull the rope and ring the bell telling everybody it's time for church. Well, when I returned home from the cemetery, I discovered that our power was still off but a limb had fallen down on my six-by-eight little greenhouse that keeps my dwarf citrus trees alive during the, during the cold winters. I went out to cut the branches away and put the roof panels back in place. Thankfully, they're this plastic stuff and not glass, or they would have shattered into a million pieces. So 
having already heard and seen the trees down all over town and many people expressing that our city just looked like a war zone, it's not so surprising that while I was working on the tree limbs in my little greenhouse, my thoughts drifted away to where people are living in a war zone. The people of Iraq, where they have literally been living in a war zone for years, I thought, now we are getting just a little taste of what it's like to lose your electricity and have no idea when it might come back on again. Now we're getting a little taste of what it's like to live in darkness day after day after day, feeling vulnerable, not knowing what might be coming next that would create more troubles, not being able to communicate because phone systems are down, not being able to plan anything, having to put your life on hold. Now, it wasn't just our loss of comfort, but the loss of our sense of security gave us a taste of what it's like to live in a war zone, what it's like to live in darkness. Now, I mentioned this reality to help us understand that the origin of our Christmas Eve text from Isaiah came out of a war zone. Isaiah is making a political statement concerning the qualities and character of an ideal king who would hopefully restore peace and security after all these years of war. Now, with the political campaigning going on now, these verses might have reminded you of a nominating speech or an introduction of a candidate at a political rally. Those introductions sound like the prophet Isaiah promising us a leader who will be our Savior to make everything right. But when Isaiah first speaks these words, he is aware that a prince has already been born. It may have been Hezekiah, but scholars aren't sure who the child was. But this prince had not yet come to power. He's just a newborn baby. Nevertheless, this birth is a sign from God that all is not lost. There is hope for the future. Scholars believe the probable setting of these verses is the Syro-Ephraimatic War of 735 to 32 BCE, before the Common Era. We used to say before Christ, but 735 to 732 But the northern kingdom, Israel, will be conquered by the Assyrians in just 10 years in 723. So the threat, the dark, dark cloud, still hovers over Judah, the southern kingdom, for another 140 years before they too are conquered and carried off into captivity to Babylon. Obviously, that priest that Isaiah speaks of did not become the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. But Isaiah's words created an image, a vision of what it would be like if a truly good and ideal king did come again and sit on David's throne. Isaiah looked back briefly, took a, a glance back to grab the image of the young and pure King David in his younger years, 
But then Isaiah does, as so many biblical writers do when they speak of the golden age, they project into the future when everything will be as God planned for it to be. Not like the past when we had to fight a war to gain our independence and fight wars to preserve our independence and build strong armies to deter our enemies. No, his vision looked into God's future where the yoke of your burden, the bar across your shoulder, and the rod of the oppressor will be broken. And the boots, the uniforms, the fighting gear of the soldiers will be burned, for there will no longer be any need for standing armies. The world will be at peace. There will be justice for all. When Isaiah was proclaiming this vision of hope, the people were still walking in their darkness. It was not just a physical darkness of the times before electricity and abundant oil lamps and candles. It wasn't the darkness of a moonless, starless, deep, cold night, but rather it was the spiritual and emotional darkness about which our Bible often speaks. For darkness is the symbol of danger and evil. We fear the darkness, for we know thieves work under the cover of darkness. We stumble and fall in the dark because we cannot see our way. Because the warmth of the sunlight dissipates at night, the night is cold, and in the wintertime the days go longer and longer our days grow shorter and shorter, and the nights grow longer and longer. So more darkness means more cold. Vegetation and leaves die. Darkness comes to symbolize death. The mythical land of the dead is a place of darkness and shadows. And when we grieve the death of loved ones, we wear black, symbolizing the dark mood and sadness in our hearts. And some of us have experienced a deep despair and sadness which sees no light at the end of the tunnel but only the deep, dark abyss of nothingness. Well, this is the kind of darkness in which the people of Judah walked. We just experienced a tiny taste of that kind of darkness. But Isaiah proclaims that the people of Judah have seen a great light. Upon them a light has shined. A child has been born for us. In one sense, the prophet is seizing upon a universal hope of humankind. Each new generation, each new generation has the possibility and the opportunity to make the good choices and to get it right. That's why grown-ups are always advising you. We made all the mistakes. We know how we messed it up. We're hoping you can learn from our mistakes and get it right. Old tyrants grow old and die, and evil eventually becomes self-destructive, sadly after it has destroyed the good around it. But a child is born. Hope for a new generation to bring in a new order. As I said, the newborn prince would not grow up for about 20 years at best, and in fact, whoever he was, he failed to become the ideal king. But that did not make Isaiah's prophecy false. 
It did not mean that this great light had not shined in the darkness. For just as darkness is a symbol, so is light a symbol. In the Bible, light is the symbol of God's presence. The psalmist speaks of God's Word as a lamp unto our feet to guide us. And the creation story in Genesis chapter 1 tells us that on the first day, God said, let there be light. However, it's not until the fourth day that the sun and the moon and the stars are created in order to provide the physical properties of light for the earth. So the ancient sage is telling us that the most important thing God did in creation was to be present and involved in the creation. On the first day, God infuses the very beginning of the creative activity with a spiritual and a moral presence. The light of God's goodness, God's wisdom, God's truth radiates from all that God creates so that at each stage God can look at what has been done and see that it is good. It is also interesting to read that text as it said, God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. In telling us that God saw that the light was good, the ancient sage implies that darkness is not included in the good. In fact, God has to separate the darkness from the light. So when we turn to our Christmas story, we see that light also plays a very strong symbolic role. We hear the expression that the glory of the Lord shone round them when the angelic host appeared to the shepherds, keeping watch over their flock by night. That idea of God's glory is expressed as a bright, shining light, the light of truth, the light of goodness, no secrets or anything hidden. And, of course, in Matthew's birth narrative, we have the Magi following the star to find the Christ child. The light shows the way to the one, the one who will be God's presence among us. And the one on whom the light shines indicates that this one has divine significance, divine qualities. Of course, the <clears throat> artists in the Middle Ages, you know all that art stuff and the symbolism. What did they do but create circles of light, halos, to indicate who the ones were that had this divine presence with them or in them. Our Christmas story reminds us that the early Christians believed that all the hopes and desires of the Messiah, the Savior, the righteous King, were met in Jesus. But just like the crown prince who had just been born in Isaiah's day, who did not grow up to be the king who would end all the wars and finally bring world peace, neither did Jesus prove to be the kind of king they expected. The problem was that the people in Isaiah's time and the people in the time of Jesus did not have any other model or example for creating their image of an ideal king except the model of the king with absolute power. In other words, an absolute dictator. They just hoped this dictator would be a benevolent dictator. 
a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting Father, a Prince of Peace. In Jesus' day, the Roman Caesar had established a kind of peace, Pax Romana. It was peace, but the cost was oppression under a cruel, iron-fisted rule. The cost of the security of that Pax Romana brought upon the people the burden of a yoke across their necks, a bar across their shoulders, and an ever-present rod to beat them into submission. But Jesus showed us that God had other plans. God's way was not to have a king come with power and then use that iron-fisted power to force the people to be good. The power and force model was not God's plan, for he came to us in the vulnerable infant baby Jesus to win our love. And as Jesus began his ministry in Galilee 30 years or so later, he preached and modeled this self-giving love. He invited people to follow him in his way. And as John's gospel says, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, the only way we can prove that John's words were true is if we follow Jesus. If Jesus is the one, the source of hope, if he is the light which shows us the way forward, then we who believe have to follow Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian who opposed Hitler and the Nazi philosophy from the beginning, tried to lead the churches to resist the hate-filled Nazi propaganda that led to the Holocaust. At the height of the Nazi campaign of hatred of enemies, Bonhoeffer was preaching a word of contradiction. He said, Love your enemies. And he confronted the people with how far this love had to go. God gave God's life, he said, God's all on the cross for your enemies. Not just for you, for your enemies. Bonhoeffer told his people, now you too give your enemies what you have. Bread, if they are hungry. Water, if they are thirsty. Aid if they are weak, blessing, compassion, and love. And then he asks, Are your enemies worth it? Are they worth it? And he answers, Who indeed could be more worthy of our love? Who could stand in greater need of our love than those who hate? Have you looked upon your enemies as those who in effect stand destitute before you? Without being able to voice it themselves, they are beseeching you, help me. Give me the one thing that can still help me out of my hate. Give me love. God's love. The love of the crucified Savior. And then he tells them that when you reject your enemy, you turn the poorest of the poor away from your door. Well, Bonhoeffer was addressing an ecumenical conference in 1934 with leaders from 15 nations and a whole slew of Christian denominations, and he challenged that assembly to become one church of Jesus Christ by uniting in the cause of peace on earth. He said, peace must be dared. It is the great venture. 
But this is not to be the peace of guaranteed security backed by weaponry, political treaties, or lucrative business investments in a war industry. Rather, it is the simple obedience to the command of Jesus Christ that must be declared with courage by those who claim to represent Jesus on earth, meaning the churches. Unfortunately, much like Jesus, Bonhoeffer had charged so far ahead of the conference, they would not follow. Now, I remember reading once that in his rise to power, there was one election in which Adolf Hitler won by only one vote. If more people in the German churches had been moved by the crucified Christ rather than the false god of the nationalistic power, then maybe the particular horrors of World War II would not have been played out on the stage of world history. And as our own Edmund Burke has said, the only way for evil to prevail is for good men and women to do nothing. Well, we are still a people who walk in darkness. The world community faces many dangers and threats that hang over us like a dark cloud. It would be easy to give in to the darkness and say, oh, it's hopeless. It's been going on for centuries. We just can't solve this problem of evil. Or we can just try to deny the seriousness of the many threats and just whistle in the dark, wishing for a benevolent dictator or a puppet master God to come and just make everything okay. Or we can respond with faith and true hope by following the way of Jesus. The Christmas candle that we light at our Christmas candle and communion service is for hope in the power of God's love to change the world. And when we receive the communion, we open our hearts to receive the love of God into our hearts. And when we light this candle, we are affirming our faith in God's power to use us to overcome the darkness of hate and fear. And as more and more and more candles create a bigger, bigger light, so too does the power and influence of love to change the world grow as more and more of us commit ourselves to overcome evil with our good, overcome hate with our love. Amen.